0: long-term relationships are harder measurably remarkably harder on female desire than they are on male desire let's stop telling women lies about who they are sexually
1: wow The idea that long-term monogamous relationships are harder for women than they are for men is kind of a mind-blowing concept, but apparently we've been sort of getting it wrong because the science hasn't really been backing up what's actually happening to female desire and promiscuity and infidelity. My guest is Dr. Wednesday Martin, and she wrote the book Untrue, why nearly everything we believe about women, lust, and infidelity is wrong And how the new science can set us free. We're gonna debunk the myth that men are inherently more promiscuous sexually and just need to sow their oats, and that women are more inclined to value emotional and love connections over sexual ones. We're also gonna talk about what do you do when you no longer have the desire to sleep with your partner and it's only been two or three years and you don't feel like stepping out of your relationship or opening it up. This is a mind-blowing episode and I am so grateful that we get to have this discourse and shed more light on female sexuality, promiscuity and desire. My name is Sean Galanos and this is the Love Drive. Okay, Wednesday, could you please introduce yourself?
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Wednesday Martin. I'm an author and a cultural critic and a feminist. And my new book is all about female sexuality and female infidelity. It's called Untrue. There could be no more fun or engaging topic than female infidelity and all the things that we've learned about female sexuality that are false. So that's really, you know, the narrow focus of the book is infidelity. And the word untrue is a double entendre, right? We use the term untrue to describe a woman who has committed infidelity or who refuses monogamy. Um, But it's also a deep dive into science about female sexuality that's untrue. And it, it goes on and on and on. There was so much bad science about female sexuality and so much great emerging science that, like I said, it was an arbitrary endpoint. And the other point is just that every book that involves social science and science is a snapshot of the data at a given moment. I mean, the data have changed since I wrote the book and will continue to change, which is the other really exciting thing here.
1: Since we're talking about... Perceptions that we've had for a while that aren't necessarily true. There was a study, I, and I don't remember who who conducted it, but you know that essentially said that men are more likely to engage in or are like hornier, have a higher libido. Women are less likely to cheat, and that was sort of like the de facto study that that <laughs> was unchallenged for like fifty years.
0: Yeah, it was ridiculously unchallenged for over half a century. I think you're referring to Angus Bateman's study on fruit flies, which in 1948, uh, an English geneticist named Angus Bateman decided to have a look at fruit fly rates of reproductive success. And he sort of gave fruit flies, um, some funny, um, genetic markers that would be easy to recognize. uh, And then he had them, uh, reproduce. And he said that the result of his study was the discovery that males benefit from mating multiply, from having sex with more than one other fruit fly. And that females only benefit from mating once and after that, um, it's of no benefit to them to, to mate. They just they do well if they don't mate multiply. And this set in motion an entire idea. Darwin had set the groundwork um, almost a century earlier by saying that males of most species are like pugnacious and assertive and courageous and females are sort of passive and um, choosy and coy when it comes to reproducing and to mating. And so Darwin had set, this presumption up. And then Bateman came along with his fruit flies and people said, well, Darwin said it. And Bateman found that among fruit flies, um, this is the way it is. So let's just basically generalize this to all species, <laughs> including human beings, and assume the obvious, which is that men are horned dogs and women are chaste and relatively chaste and uh, choosy and coy. And people said, and you know, naturally that just makes sense because there are so many randy sperm and there's just this one precious egg and females become pregnant if they're mammals ingestate and, and lactate. So this is the natural order of things. However, the inconvenient truth, if you will, is that Bateman was wrong. And his study was uh, revisited in 19... 19- uh, sorry, in 2013, by a biologist named Patricia Galady in her lab at UCLA, she tried to replicate the experiment, and she said, "You guys, we've been basing all our assumptions about human male and female sexuality on this study that nobody bothered to try to replicate for over half a decade, and now we see what we have seen that field scientists have observed and." people who study human sexuality have observed, which is that females do benefit from mating multiply. Females do mate promiscuously and women do enjoy sex with more than one partner. Can you believe that it took so long to undo the science about such an obvious untruth about women that we like sex less and that we're sort of naturally or inherently less promiscuous if you want to use the term that's used in science, uh, than men. It, it It's astonishing. But yes, we're talking about fruit flies and, and a study from 1948 upon which we built a world of incorrect assumptions about who men and women are.
1: And I can imagine that that is actually damaging, right? Because there's this idea that yeah, we're born a certain way, but also we are then socialized a certain way. And so if we keep hearing this message that men are more promiscuous, they have more sex, women women aren't as interested into it, they're more interested in emotional connection and love connection, then you, it's almost like you're being gaslighted by society. Yeah, br-
0: that's a great way to look at it, that science has been complicit in gaslighting uh, men and women alike, or people who identify as male and female alike. I always like to say that when there's bad science about female sexuality, there's also bad science about male sexuality. It affects all of us. When we say that women are somehow um, more naturally focused on emotional connection and on you know, finding one mate and being happy with one mate, and that it stems from nature and biology. We're not just uh, misrepresenting women. We're also misrepresenting men and suggesting that they're more inherently promiscuous, that they don't seek emotional connection, um, that they don't want to be in and, and thrive in relationships. That they're you know that they're just wired to blow it up. Um, men don't like to be profiled like that either. Plenty of men want emotional connection. Plenty of women. Want orgasms. And we've got to stop. It's way past time to stop with these really reductive misrepresentations of men and women alike. So that's the exciting thing about the science is that, you know, where we used to think, for just a quick example, all these female field scientists went out and they observed mammals of many species and human females. And they said, well, in some contexts, You know, human females are polyandrous. You know, they have more than one husband, for example, in some regions of the world. Um, In some regions of the world, like in northern Namibia, among the Himba, women are married, but they also have children by their lovers and nobody bats an eye. Um, Female field scientists who were studying mammals who weren't human, like non-human, human primates and other mammals, said, wait a second, females are breeding promiscuously. They're copulating with one male after another, often in rapid succession. We have to revisit this narrative that because they're the ones who become pregnant, they're somehow more choosy and less sexual. We have to revisit this. And what they discovered was that among female mammals, uh, including humans, females who breed promiscuously, if you will, or who have, who mate multiply, get lots of benefits from it, right? They can up their odds of getting really high quality sperm if they're having sex with more than one male. If you're having sex with one, just one male, what happens if he has really low sperm motility? Um, what happens if he just has poor quality sperm? But if you're mating multiply and you're female, you're upping your odds that you'll get higher sperm quality You're upping your odds that you will have that just right genetic difference from your mate that is called heterozygosity and that that creates a really robust pregnancy and a really robust offspring. So if you're mating multiply, you're upping your chances of that. You're upping your chances that more than one male will figure, well, there's a good enough chance that that's my offspring. So I'm going to support her during her pregnancy. And I'm even going to maybe support and protect her offspring and not commit infanticide because it might be my offspring because that's infanticide is an issue in, in some mammal species. And finally, the promiscuously breeding female, we now know a lot of evolutionary biologists are telling us, um, depletes the sperm of the of Multiple males and the sperm depletion means there's less sperm for her female rivals. So the picture that starts to emerge is that in our evolutionary prehistory, it made a lot of sense for us as females to mate multiply, probably you know, conferred more benefits to us than it confers to males. Because if you're a male and you're breeding multiply in many species, do you know how hard it is to impregnate a female? It doesn't just happen. So if you're just breeding and running away um, and breeding with somebody else, the the mathematical, the statistical likelihood of inseminating is really low. Then you factor in how often there are spontaneous miscarriages or issues with pregnancies that, and they don't result in a healthy offspring, there goes his uh, chance of reproduction is even lower now if he just mates and runs. Um, So there are all these reasons. Plus it's very costly to produce sperm. So if he's trying to produce sperm for all these different females in and mating multiply, it's really, now we understand, it's not necessarily so beneficial for males, including human males, to mate multiply. There are all kinds of issues with it. So this is a huge sea change in the science, and I felt like people really needed to know about it. And that's just one example, right? We we have all this evidence now that females benefited from mating multiply in our evolutionary prehistory. That doesn't just go away,
1: Yeah, that goes counter to the thing that that we hear that, oh, men just need to sow their oats.
0: Right, exactly. We see what a crappy strategy that is, actually, to just sow your oats. Like I said, what's the chance that you're going to hit ovulation on the nose? And then once you hit ovulation, if you even do, what's the chance that that pregnancy is going to turn into a healthy offspring? And how much does it cost you to keep producing sperm? That stuff is more costly than we imagined. So, really, um, I my I throw my hat into the ring with the scientists and social scientists who now argue that breeding promiscuously—I keep using that term. I'm sorry, but mating multiply um, was arguably more valuable and a better strategy for females than for female than for males in our evolutionary prehistory, and that would explain, uh, in at least in part, why there's. So that's the primatology and that's the evolutionary biology. Now let's look at the sex research. If it were the case that it was more beneficial to early female humans and female hominins to breed promiscuously than it was for the males, that would at least in part help us understand why today the sex research is finding again and again in numerous longitudinal studies that women have a harder time with monogamy than men do and we have studies longitudinal studies from finland from the united states from the uk from germany all of which suggest that long term relationships are harder measurably remarkably harder on female desire than they are on male desire that monogamy is a tighter shoe for women than it is for men so just you know, just trying to show how these different sciences are all kind of coming together on this same point that what we've been taught that women are designed for monogamy is untrue.
1: That is a huge, huge statement. That- <laughs> a
0: lot of people don't like it and a lot of women at the same time. I've I've had a lot of um straight men, especially have a hard time wrapping their mind around it and accepting it when, but you know, when you show people longitudinal study after longitudinal study, sometimes you can start to dislodge a really deeply embraced idea. And that deeply embraced idea would be that men are naturally more sexual than women. Right. And, and naturally need, as you said, to sow their oats. What what also happens when I talk about this wealth of data is that many, many women can come to me and say, or reach out to me and say, this makes so much intuitive sense. I'm always the one who turns off sex before my partner in a longer term relationship does. I always have been. I thought there was something wrong with me, something wrong with my partner, something wrong with the relationship. If we get these data into the hands of actual lay people, regular people struggling in their relationships, we could really help a lot of them. What if we told women who turned off sex after one to three years, which the data tell us is what happens, that between years one and three in a long-term relationship, women's desire just drops dramatically and male desire doesn't. What if we told those women? you're just a woman being a normal woman. Look at this data. This is what happens. It's not a referendum on you. There's not something wrong with you. That's not a referendum on your male or female partner. And it's not a referendum on your relationship. A drop in desire between years one and three, a dramatic one, uh, is very, very typical. And it's not a referendum. It doesn't mean that you have to step out. It doesn't mean that you should break up. It doesn't mean that anything's wrong. It means that you're a woman (laughs) being a normal woman. That I think would be a game changer for many women and men alike in their relationships. If we just demystified that drop until recently, we have thought that that one to three year drop in desire, which is so common among women. In long-term relationships was because women don't like sex. But now we're seeing that if you introduce some novelty, uh, their libido will flame back. So we have to deal with the fact that women like variety and novelty and adventure and need it probably even more than men do. And the question once you get people to accept that data is, where do we go now?
1: That's a great question. (laughs) I want... (laughs) I want everybody to have as much novelty as they want and to have sex with strange new partners if that works for them and if it could fire up their their desire to have more sex.
0: I like to say that I think there's a silent majority of women out there who are struggling with monogamy and they think that it's supposed to be easier for them than it is for men. And they're really having a hard time and turning off. And what do they do, heterosexual women and perhaps some lesbians too? We need more sex research. We need more data about people who aren't straight. But what tends to happen when you're in a long-term relationship, you really like your partner and you don't want to step out. You don't want to walk away you don't want to talk about consensual non-monogamy or it's just not on your radar. What happens when your partner keeps wanting to have sex with you, but you've had this drop in desire at years one to three. Um, What tends to happen is that women tend to have sex with their male partners, even though they really don't want to, Um, even though they're not really excited about it, even though it's not really doing it for them. And, there's a word for this. Sex researchers use the term "service sex," mm. and it's exactly what it sounds like, right? You're like, "This is for the good of my partner. This is for the good of my relationship. I should do this, even though I'm not feeling attracted to him." Again, most of the data that we have is about men and women, so pardon me when I talk in this way, um, but this is the the data that we have about service sex, and so. What will happen then is the woman will say, I, I should do this for him. Well, how fast do you go from that to really resenting it and to feeling like, I guess sex just isn't for me. And even if you have a glimmer of understanding, yeah, but I'm still turned on by other people, then you might decide the solution is I have to break up with this person. and. Start the whole cycle again, but then you'll be bored again in one to three years. So this is a conundrum. I like to say that it's a conundrum faced by the silent majority of women, and we just need to get information into their hands and into the, ha- the hands of their partners um, that there's nothing unusual here. And yeah, what what to do next? And the, you know, there are a range of solutions. Some people, for some people, novelty will mean seeking out a partner. Consensually or without disclosing it. Um, For some people, it will mean just trying to bring novelty into their long term relationship while remaining monogamous and getting creative about that.
1: Some people might not know this about me, but I used to, I, I did a stint as an erotic masseur in San Francisco.
0: Oh wow, I did not know that, John.
1: <laughs> a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Including probably my parents, but maybe now they, they, well, now, they
0: now, now they might they know. know. Mom, dad, now you know. <laughs>
1: now you know. Um and I built up quite uh like a full practice of providing erotic massage to women.
0: I am not the least bit surprised. Uh,
1: because of me or just because of this there's a there's a market out there for because this.
0: Because women want and need variety and novelty and adventure. And if they can avail themselves of transactional sex, I do not doubt that that seems like and is a great solution for many women facing the monogamy conundrum.
1: And most of my clients were in either sexless or unhappy relationships.
0: Aha. And they were saying, maybe maybe. Um, and this is what Dr. Alicia Walker, a sex researcher whose work I really love, has found in her studies of women who use Ashley Madison or who go online in other ways to augment the sex that they are having in their marriages but aren't happy with, or sex they're not getting in their marriages, but they're otherwise happy with their marriages. They don't want to end them and they use infidelity if we want to call it that as a workaround strategy they're telling dr walker it's not that i don't love my partner or my spouse i do i love our life together I love that we're raising kids together. All these things are good, but my marriage is sexually unsatisfying or sexless. So I have this workaround strategy. So for some women, it might be Ashley Madison. For some women, it might be consensual non-monogamy. For some women, it might be transactional sex. And that's where Sean comes in with his his great hands, apparently.
1: That's where Sean came came in, came in.
0: Right. Okay. That was in the past. So so these women would come to you and eventually, I'm sure it was like a very therapeutic relationship. So eventually they were telling you that this was an outlet for them.
1: Usually during the intake conversation, they would share, I would ask them why they were interested in this type of sensual massage and they would they would share with me like oh i've been married forever and we just don't have sex anymore.
0: Right because maybe they just said you know what i'm not even doing service sex anymore. Like, yeah. I'm done with the service sex and i need a solution. And you know i think we need to get that out into mainstream discourse more too. Women can't go without sex forever any more than men can, although there are some people who are asexual and that's going to be okay for them. Um, but, you know, one of the other big myths about male and female sexuality is that men have stronger libidos than women do. And female researchers have revisited this recently. Somebody named Rosemary Basson a sex researcher, came up with this idea that perhaps we were just not looking at sexual desire and libido in the right way. And she realized that there is more than one desire style. One desire style is spontaneous desire. You know, when you're just sitting there and then out of the clear blue sky, you think, wow, I'd like to have sex, right? Mm -hmm. It just, the desire just comes upon you. But Rosemary Basson discovered that there was another desire style, And she called it triggered or responsive desire. And that's when you're not thinking about sex or interested in having sex, but maybe somebody touches your arm or somebody gives you a really lustful glance on the street. Or maybe you start fooling around with somebody, then suddenly your desire gets lit, if you will. And she called that triggered or responsive desire. And she said, hey, everybody, if we measure triggered or responsive desire, there's not this huge gap between the male and the female libido. Sure, if we measure only spontaneous desire, men seem very highly sexed compared to women. But if we look at these other measures, things really even out. Uh, Then in 2014, Meredith Chivers uh, did some experiments in her lab Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And she had men and women alike rate their responses to pornography. And she found that they reported nearly identical levels of arousal. So this very basic foundation in the house of human sexuality, we sort of built the house on this foundation that monogamy is easier for women, but that was built on the assumption that men are, women have lower uh, libidos than men do. So that's been revisited as well. So, am I surprised at all that women in sexless or sexually unsatisfying long term relationships were coming to you? Not a single bit. <laughs> and I hope that they feel normal. I hope that they get access to the data, which are very reassuring and say if you feel like you have a high libido and you're female, chances are. You're well within the range of normal.
1: It's funny. I just, uh, I was posting on Instagram about this interview and someone sent me a message and they said, oh, I'm so glad that you're going to be talking about this because I really feel abnormal. My libido, you know, I've been told that my libido is abnormally high.
0: Oh, I hear that every day. Um, And one of the things that started me on this quest is when I was just poking around a little bit through a network and then through a social scientist who helped me recruit people to interview. What I heard over and over from women was, you don't want to talk to me. I have a really high libido. It's monogamy is really hard for me. Okay. Now that was not a random or representative sample, but come on. When 50 women tell you that they're really unusual, you start to realize if might think you're unusual, but I'm hearing an awful lot about this. So let's reconsider what is weird or unusual or, you know, off the charts. We may well find that it's well within the range of normal. I think Rosemary Bass and, and Meredith Chivers and some other female sex researchers have helped us in really big ways to reframe the range of normal for the female libido. I mean, it's really hard for women to Buck the sense that there's something wrong with them sexually. I'm happy to be part of the movement to help women who think that they're too highly sexed or that it's really weird that they struggle with monogamy understand they're just normal women being normal women. Monogamy is really, really hard for women. In the aggregate, monogamy is harder for women than it is for men. We see it again and again. And again, in the data, let's stop telling women lies about who they are sexually.
1: You wrote, part of female sexuality, part of its legacy and its present and its future is that it is assertive, pleasure-centered, and selfish.
0: Yes, none of us would be here if uh, early human females and female hominins Hadn't been really canny social and sexual strategists driven by pleasure. (laughs) When we have a clitoris, which we now know is exponentially larger and more comprehensive than we've ever been taught, we now have this information about the internal clitoris, right? Many of us were taught that it was just this little bud that we could see with our naked eye, right? that Now that part of the clitoris alone has something like 8,000 nerve endings, making it 12 to 15 times more sensitive than the glands of the penis. But now we know that the clitoris isn't just that little bud or button um, the piece I wrote about the clitoris for Amazon Original Stories is called "The Button," um, but it's not a button at all. It is really this vast super highway of sensation, and I I believe what evolutionary biologists and sex researchers say. I I I align myself with those who say that we evolved the clitoris, which is pretty much solely. Uh, for sexual pleasure, so that we would seek it out and so that we would seek out the ultimate reward of a multiple orgasm by mating multiply, likely in rapid succession with multiple males to get ourselves to the point of orgasm. And um, (laughs) to say that this is a rewriting of the traditional view of female sexuality is an understatement. Um, but I do believe that our evolutionary legacy is assertive female sexuality. And all you have to do is look at non-human female primates and see how they breed and how they mate. The single most observable characteristic the anthropologist Meredith Small has written about non-human female primates in their sexual and social behavior is the search For novelty, they are always seeking out novel males, often at great risk to themselves, uh, risk to their safety. But they seek that out over and over. Are we macaques? We are not. Um, But you know, it it is no coincidence that our most our our closest non human primate relatives, chimps and bonobos, uh, have these large forward facing clitorides that's the plural of clit oh. and yeah a clitoris is if you're going to go for the plural say clitorides they have these enlarged forward facing clitorides and they definitely most definitely mate multiply and they do it for pleasure and that is our evolutionary legacy
1: yeah I, from everything that I got from your book, is that I wrote here primates are freaky yeah. as shit.
0: <laughs> I think that when we get to the point, if we get to the point where women have equally high rates of political participation as men do, if we close the wage gap as we've closed the education gap in the industrialized West, we will see women behaving a lot like women do in radically egalitarian settings, like traditional hunter-gatherers, where women are free to pursue uh, sexual pleasure, not necessarily monogamously. And they do, among a lot of traditional hunter-gatherer societies, which many anthropologists believe provide a kind of time capsule into how we lived during the Pleistocene and what our evolutionary prehistory is, we see that there's a lot of gender equality and there's a lot of parity. These are relatively non-hierarchical societies. And we see that women have a lot of sexual autonomy.
1: Cooperative breeding.
0: That's a really important word for everybody to know about. It's a really important development in anthropology and evolutionary biology over the last couple of decades, we used to believe that we evolved in a heterosexual dyad that, you know, we lived in caves and and males brought food for females who were in there with the baby and in the kitchen, in the kitchen and the cave kitchen in
1: the ho- in inside the home <laughs> where and women can- belong.
0: That's exactly right. Anthropology was really complicit in perpetuating the narrative that there was something natural about the 1950s arrangement in the suburbs after World War II, that men belonged in the big outside world and women belonged in the home, and that it was natural. Anthropology was really complicit in perpetuating that untrue belief. There's an anthropologist named Irvin DeVore who came up with an idea called the man the hunter hypothesis and some anthropologists believe in it to this day but what most anthropologists now believe is because there's a preponderance of evidence about it is that we evolved as cooperative breeders. we didn't evolve in a monogamous pair bonded dyad although some of us really like that and we can be good at that but that What's much more likely is that we evolved living in these kind of rangy bands in which we raised our offspring cooperatively and also mated cooperatively, right? Had sex cooperatively, mated multiply and raised our offspring cooperatively. And you can see how that would work. If you're mating multiply, many people feel invested in the well-being of the offspring, figuring it might be mine. And um, we also had in cooperative breeding, the record seems to suggest and current science and data suggest that women helped each other nurse their babies and raise their offspring and that children played a pretty big role in child rearing as well. We see that in a lot of um, cultures around the world. So the way that we're doing parenting and sex now in a monogamous heterosexual dyad is new, and it is a complete aberration in the long human calendar of cooperative breeding and egalitarianism. I like to say that inequality is also an aberration in the very long human calendar as well.
1: And it leaves women like Annika at home, isolated, in a suburb, raising children with no friends and no colleagues while her husband is, ha- is having an affair with somebody in the city, has plenty of social connections, has status from his job, has basically everything that somebody needs to thrive.
0: And this is such a typical situation that we start to think this must be the way that it's always been. So you're referring to a woman I call Annika in my book on True, which has some case studies about women and how they're doing their sex lives and how they're seeking and finding or not finding um, sexual satisfaction within monogamy. And I interviewed 30 women, many of whom had stepped out on the DL, but others of whom had been openly non-monogamous. And Annika was one of the people who had, for a time, had a strategy of what she described as sneaking around, right? We would call it undisclosed non-monogamy. And then what happened is her fate shifted, um, and they moved to the suburbs, as you described, and she had these two young children, And she was isolated, as you said, she didn't live near her kin anymore. She was isolated from her social support network of girlfriends. And now her husband could do what he wanted. And it turned out people who read my book will see just how surprising it was to Annika um, when she figured out what was going on. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to people to read. But you're so right. Annika's fate is really typical. What we do now, now that we're Basically, we've fetishized the heterosexual monogamous pair bond. We have made women's lives incredibly difficult. We have made childrearing incredibly difficult. And um, we have made it really difficult for women to have sexual autonomy because they're isolated from their kin, which is their natural power base. They don't have a lot of social support. The amazing thing to me is that women still in these straightened circumstances Uh, manage to exercise sexual autonomy. So a lot of women, um, in spite of not having a lot of kin support and not having an income, (laughs) are still committing infidelity. And one of the reasons I focus on female infidelity is I think that it is our tolerance of it, and the way we respond to it, is the best metric we have for how we really feel about gender parity right? We're perfectly willing to give lip service to the idea that a woman should be president or can be president unless it's Hillary Clinton. People had a really hard time with that. We're perfectly willing to give lip service to the idea that women should get paid what men get paid. But then when we have a woman who is not being monogamous, that's when people say, oh, wait, hold on a second now. That's, well, that's not right. That's not good. So you will see that in societies where women have high rates of political participation and high rates of labor force participation, there's a pretty high tolerance for female infidelity versus the United States where women who commit infidelity are at really high risk of domestic violence uh, and even lethal violence of being killed. Um, we know that many mass shootings, uh, the ones that aren't school. Mass shootings tend to involve men whose wives or female partners have exercised autonomy of some sort, including leaving them. Um, so it's really dangerous for many women in the United States to exercise that kind of sexual autonomy. We continue to do it anyway.
1: And I get the impression that if we lived in a more egalitarian society, it would be there would be more. Uh, what's the word? Uh, not leniency, but it would be more accepted.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's. Re- I like to say that it's really hard to raise your hand or to control a woman who's providing for you and the band. So, in our evolutionary prehistory, you know, ninety-five <laughs> percent of which we lived as egalitarian hunter gatherers, women were providing something like. 80% of the calories for the band. You sure you liked meat that men brought in once in a while, but sometimes women helped with the hunt. But uh, in addition, much of the time between those episodic times when men were providing meat, um, women were s- providing the sustenance, the shaw roots, the tubers, the nuts. Um, that's a lot of protein. That's a lot of food that everybody needed, and women were providing it. That gave them a lot of power. That gave them a lot of clout, including the power and clout to have sex as they saw fit. Now, when we read about, for example, the Kung um, of Botswana who an anthropologist named Marjorie Shostak studied in great depth and she wrote this great book called Nisa The Life of a kun Woman about the sex life of this uh, female hunter-gatherer uh, what she found is and she made the argument that you know, Nisa's life was very typical in many ways of what the lives of women were in our evolutionary prehistory she found that you know, Kung women had remarkable autonomy compared to American women, and that they were pretty much free to go off and consort with their lovers in the bush or, you know, in their dwellings at night. And they had to have a veil of secrecy, if you will. And their husbands and male partners didn't love it. But hey, try to beat up a woman who's living around all her kin try to control a woman um, who has political and social clout because she's feeding everybody. Try to do that and see how it goes for you. It doesn't go very well. Uh, The anthropologist Sarah Hurdy has observed that Nisa, and like many contemporary hunter-gatherers, has the freedom to vote with her feet. If she doesn't like what's going on, she can get up and go live in another band she can go live with her kin elsewhere or if her kin live she lives with her kin she just gets up and walks over to her family compound so we like to say that women in the united states today are you know incredibly empowered and liberated and our lives are great not if you look at the worldwide ethnographic data we don't have high rates of meaningful labor force and political participation our rates on those metrics are pathetic if we look at it in worldwide context we're basically you know 100th of 200 countries ranked on those metrics of meaningful labor force and meaningful political participation which is even more shameful when you consider how rich we are as a nation right among the richest three in the world so whenever uh, People try to say that women have it great in the United States. Uh, the worldwide ethnographic data and a look at our hunter gatherer uh, sisters and what our evolutionary prehistory likely was tell a very different story. Um, and that we used to be far more empowered in our sexual autonomy than we are today. And yeah. in other forms, and, and that, as we said, that was sort of a round of a way of saying, women's sexual autonomy is linked to their economic and political autonomy. And we do not, we are not there in the United States yet.
1: Yeah. And and it sounds like it would be really hard to leave a situation where you are caring for your children full time. You've been out of the workforce for years and you're married to somebody who doesn't want you to leave.
0: Yeah, and this was exactly the position Annika found herself in. And I I actually wrote about this in my previous book, Primates of Park Avenue. You know, I said that Park Avenue was a really patriarchal setting because what happens there and in many other settings in the United States is uh, there's this belief that if you can afford to, since we have such horrible Childcare options in this country. There's this belief that if you can, you should stay home with your children, right? And I can see why many women um, do that. The mistake is to think that you have a choice. It's not really a choice because there aren't a lot of other great options. So what tends to happen is women tend, even though you know many women are in the in the workforce, we still tend to think to this day, of women as the primary caregivers of children, that if they can afford to stay home with them, they will. And then what happens? Then it's not just you who's economically dependent, if you're heterosexual, on your partner. You have economically dependent offspring as well. Now, factor in that we tend to live neolocally in the United States, that is... After we marry, we tend to live apart from our parents, our family of origin. Now, our parents might drive us crazy, but if you're female, your family, your kin is your power base. It always has been, and it remains that across the world. So we take women away from their natural power base, which is their kin. We take them out of the labor force, right? Because there's no good on-site daycare in most instances. You know, Then we give them dependent offspring. Are you kidding? Do you really think these women have any form of autonomy, let alone sexual autonomy? Um, they don't. And the stakes will be very, very high if they get caught trying to exercise sexual autonomy. Fortunately, many women will not be beaten for it or shot and killed for it, um, but which happens far, far too often in the United States. But they could be divorced for it and just lose everything economically, right? Think how much easier it is for the heterosexual man who's out there in the workforce meeting people every day, making all the money while they have children who are too young to be in school full time. Um, there will be very few consequences except that his wife will be mad at him and people might scorn him, but he won't have the same economic consequences, uh, unless he lives in a communal property state like California. Um, but you know, the consequences will be much less dire for him. He can consider this. This starts to seem like a not terrible idea, depending on how he feels about monogamy. It starts to seem like a risk worth taking um, if you don't have financial skin in the game, if you're the one earning all the money. Meanwhile, for an economically dependent heterosexual woman, it could be a catastrophe for her to exercise sexual autonomy. So there's a really big a uh, gulf in experience, right there, a very big gulf in gendered experience about sexual autonomy. People don't really want to look at it or acknowledge that it's there, but it's glaring.
1: And now we are looking at it, which is amazing. And it also appears to me, uh, and it seems like polyamorous and experts who work with them are, are tending to agree that polyamorous relationships are, are most often driven by women.
0: Yeah, isn't that as going to come as a surprise to a lot of people, but not to experts and not to poly people themselves. I mean, of course, there are many polyamorous arrangements out there that men initiated. Um, but what experts told me, including my friend Misha Lynn, who is the um, co-founder and past president of Open Love New York, or Dr. David Lay a psychologist who has studied consensually non-monogamous relationships mostly among heterosexuals they they say that many times you know the people coming in to therapy to say i need a change i need us to open things up uh, are female you know, there's a joke among swingers that men might initiate it, but that when they get their heterosexual female partners into swinging, there's a saying, it's hard to get the genie to go back into her bottle mm. uh, because women just really take to it. We need more data and more numbers and, and more studies. But what we know is that it is very hard to, to get into these subcultures for good reason. They're very protective of their privacy because they've been so stigmatized. But I think many people would be surprised, you know, people who have heard the bad science and who have been basically conditioned to believe that men are the players and men are the ones who want variety and novelty and adventure and need it, would be surprised at just how many women are the ones asking to open up their relationships asking to alter their arrangement needing it a lot of women finally get to the point where they say I can't do this anymore and I don't want a divorce but this I'm this isn't working for me sexually let's change it up so that's a really interesting thing that I discovered when I was writing on true that this whole idea that women evolved for variety and novelty and sexual adventure and I believe, need it even more than men do in the aggregate, gets played out in our everyday lives. Still,
1: it's interesting because I've sort of always known that like male libido declines over time. Mm-hmm. So, and that and that female libido c- kind of climbs, right? It's th- that's that whole thing of uh, women are in their prime sort of later in life, and men sort of are in their prime at like you know, in yeah. the early twenties. Uh uh-huh. So but, yeah. why yeah. are we surprised?
0: I don't know. I, I mean, I think again, back to bad science, you know, science is so persuasive, but it's so subject to cultural mediation and influence. Uh, but we have to remember, we just tend to believe what scientists and social scientists tell us. And so we're surprised again and again, Basically, because this foundation got built in the mid 19th century and we've been building a house on this foundation ever since. Um, there's contradictory data about when men versus women reach their sexual peak. Um, if we're even going to say that such a thing exists, but I, I am familiar with some of the studies that you're, you're referring to here. Another really interesting thing I think that has emerged lately and therapists talk about it in terms of there's a lot of anecdotal information about it, but that there's this phenomenon of women once they get older and their children are fledged deciding, oh, guess what? I don't want to be with a man anymore. Dr. Lisa Diamond has written about this idea of sexual fluidity. For a long time, she believed that women were somehow more sexually fluid than men right? That we all have an orientation. That's a real thing. But there's this other factor in some of our sexuality called fluidity in which our orientation doesn't provide the last word on who we're attracted to. Um, So she was seeing this a lot in women. Now we know that men, free of constraint, if they're younger and they haven't been submerged in the ideology about machismo, men will tend to be sexually fluid too. But Initially, she was looking at the phenomenon among women. I interviewed many, many women. I wrote a piece about it for The Observer a while back called Gay Until Labor Day about women in the Hamptons whose children had fledged. They were out alone in the Hamptons all summer, only seeing their husbands on the weekends when their husbands came out. And they were having affairs with their female trainers. And these are women who were established and in assumed heterosexual marriages for long periods of time. And I asked sex researchers about it. And they said, are, are you kidding? We're not surprised by that at all. Female sexual fluidity is a thing. And in the women that I was looking at, it tended to be happening later in life. So back to your point about, you know, if we studied the female libido, if we cared about it, we would be very surprised by what we found. Um, I think that phenomenon could be categorized in that way.
1: And that seems to cement the idea that, you know, they did the study of women 25 to 29 were just as likely to engage in group sex, but twice as likely than men to have visited sex parties, swinger parties, BDSM stuff, dungeons.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that finding. And also that women 18 to 29 outpaced their male peers in infidelity. So here's the question that you have to ask yourself first of all, Old science would have said this, oh, well, of course, that's just because men are more sexual and they want female partners in their 20s. Now, through the lens of a less biased science, we can approach the data as data and say, let's consider that women are doing this because they want to, (laughs) right? Like it's so obvious, so women to eight, 18 to twenty nine are committing are are, are um, having extra pair sex more than men eighteen to twenty nine, and as you said, they're twice as likely to be sexually adventurous in the ways that you described. The question is, oh, does that all change? Do women just become less sexually adventurous naturally as they age, or are the institutions of marriage and motherhood impacting this, but do we have this kind of flame within ourselves of being sexual adventuresses and it gets is extinguished or it gets reformed? And I think that's a lot more likely than people asserting that, like, oh yeah, this is all driven because men like women in their 20s. Give me a break. Mm. Like, why are we? Why would we assert that female sexual behavior is driven
1: by male desire? It's so tired. It's tired, and and I'm curious. And in
0: act, it's bad science. Is what
1: it is. <laughs> I love that you got. You're getting like a little fired up about bad science. I
0: Do get fired up about. Viewing female sexuality through the lens of male desire, enough already. Female sexuality is its own thing. It's its own force to be reckoned with. Stop refracting it through the lens always of what heterosexual
1: men want. I mean, I feel like this is a really powerful place to end the interview. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay, you know what? I think we found our natural end point here. You know what? I would just want to say one other thing, and you can use this as where if you want. But here's what I want to say. I don't think that men and women are naturally any one way sexually at all. That is a myth what anthropology teaches us and what I love about anthropology is it helps us understand we evolved as really flexible sexual and social strategists. It's the reason our species is here today. And it's the reason that we have so many different varied preferences. And it's the reason that some of us can really thrive in monogamy and find it great. And the reason that some of us really, really struggle with it. Um, So there's not any one right way at all. It's just that what we know from science is that being sexually excited by the same person over and over and over uh, for years and decades at a time as we would be required to with lifelong technical monogamy doesn't conform to any known Scientific model we have about how we habituate to a stimulus over time or become desensitized to excitement over time. So, you know, those are sort of the conceptual points around which women will have to make their own decisions about what works for them, what is safe for them to ask for. Because as we discussed, for some women, it will literally be unsafe to uh, ask for anything other than monogamy. Other women are going to be privileged enough that they get to act on their evolved appetites for adventure and variety and novelty. Um, But putting women in a cage and locking the key by saying that women are more naturally monogamous, that's an idea whose time has come. Good riddance.
1: And thank you for all of your your work to to get rid of that idea.
0: Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me on and having a conversation. I think a lot of men and women and people who identify as neither will really benefit when they dig into the newer science and social science about who we are sexually, which tells us a lot about who we are um, more generally. So thank you, so much for helping fuel the fire.
1: Hey, Lovebirds, thank you so much for spending another hour with me today. Your continued support means a lot to me. It really does. So thanks. And I guess I'd like to take this opportunity to say that if you are not happy with your sex life, whether it's in your relationship or whether you're dating and you're not having the kind of sex that you want or you're not being as promiscuous or sexually open as you want to be, then I invite you to contact me to see if me coaching you through this could be valuable to you. My goal is to support you in your development. And if more fulfilling and exciting sex is something that you want, let's see if I can't help you get there. The whole goal of coaching is to identify where you're at, where you want to be, and then figure out ways to get there. And my job is to provide the framework and the support to create the awareness and the responsibility and the action plan to move you towards a way of being that is more in line with your desires. So if that sounds like something that you want to explore, let's get on the phone for 30 minutes to see if working together is a good fit. Send me an email, sean at thelovedrive.com. That's S-H-A-U-N. Or go to thelovedrive.com forward slash coaching. And I would be honored to support you in getting the sex life that you desire. Have a beautiful week.